Well, it's good to be with you this morning, even if virtually. Uh, I'm going to be preaching this morning, uh, and I'm going to start by speaking about humility. Humility is a virtue that's quickly losing traction in our world today. Uh, sure, we still love the occasional humble hero or sports star, and we still want our politicians and leaders to be humble, although maybe that's more a case of tall poppy syndrome. But when it comes to your average everyday woman and man and girl and boy, you don't often hear anyone advocating for humility because humility you see, is normally associated with weakness and our world values strength and power and independence and pride. You, know, you need to love yourself. You're enough. Take control. You're strong. And in that context, the idea of humility is just wrong, damaging even. After all, there's plenty of marches for pride, but nobody marches for humility. But I think one reason uh, that humility is losing its grip in our Western world is because we've forgotten what humility really is. And that's because we've forgotten much of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel that defines humility for us and grounds it and gives us reasons to value it and love it. Now, there's many theological reasons for humility as our creatureliness, as our human frailty, which is especially obvious right now under COVID-19. But in this series of three sermons on uh, Wednesday mornings, I, I want to concentrate on three reasons for humility that come to the fore in Romans chapters 9 to 11. Now, I know humility isn't the only theme in Romans 9 to 11. These chapters are packed full of amazing truths. But humility is an important undercurrent throughout. And the kind of humility Paul's talking about in these chapters is especially relevant to gospel ministry and mission. So it's helpful for us to consider it in more College Chapel. Let me think about uh, the own, your own ministry for a moment, the ministries you're involved in. What are your goals and plans? What's the vision? What's the ideal? What's the drive behind why you're doing what you're doing? What are you expecting God to achieve through you? Has God met your expectations? Well, Microsoft Teams keeps us humble, doesn't it? I'm not sure how much I lost there, but it looks like I, uh, <laughs> I uh, popped out there for a moment. Well, we're back in. Romans 9 to 11 are all set in the context of Paul's apostolic ministry. Paul's ministry as an Israelite apostle preaching to the nations. And at the start of Romans, Paul introduces himself as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, bringing God's word to the nations. And Paul's ministry is all caught up with God's purpose for Israel. Now, you know your biblical theology, don't you? God had promised that through Israel, all the world would be blessed. Israel was to be a light to the nations. But for Paul, there's a real problem here. Because as Paul has already said in Romans chapters 1 to 8, the main, way is, the main way so far Israel has contributed to God's great purposes is by their failure. Israel sinned. Israel broke God's law. And the testimony of the law and the prophets is this. Israel achieves God's purposes by failing. How? Well, Israel's sin shows up God's justice. And so demonstrates that the whole world is under sin and accountable to God. Israel's sin demonstrates that God's judgment and wrath is just, which reveals our need to find that wonderful justification only by faith in Christ, that grace. 
And yet, as Paul writes Romans, the vast majority of Paul's fellow Jews have not found salvation in Christ. They're unbelieving. They're still facing God's judgment for their sin. So this is the issue for Paul. Is, is that all there is for Israel? Has God just used Israel as a gigantic illustration of human sinfulness and God's judgment and then abandoned them? How tragic would that be? Just listen to how much Paul cares about this issue. I'm studying Romans uh, chapter 9, reading verses 1 to 3. Paul says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirming my testimony in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I would beg of Christ that I myself might be accursed for the sake of my brothers, my kinsfolk, according to the flesh. See, Paul loves Israel deeply with anguish and passion. Why? Because they're his people. Maybe you feel this way with your own relatives or friends who do not yet know Jesus. You long for them to be saved, to trust in Jesus. And maybe you do anything for that to happen. That's a right longing, isn't it? But for Paul, there's more. It's not just that they're his relatives, that is true, but verse four, they're Israelites. To them belong the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the law giving and the temple service and the promises. Theirs are the fathers and from them is the Christ according to the flesh, the one who is God over all, blessed forever, amen. You see, Paul says, Israel has a special place in God's global purposes through Christ. God gave them the law as appointed to Christ. Christ, who is God for all and over all, is also from Israel. And this is Paul's issue. How can Israel play this great role in God's purposes for salvation through Christ and then just fail to find salvation themselves? Well, the answer in a nutshell is there in the first half of verse 6. I want you to listen closely to this answer, because if you understand it and all its implications, yes, my name is you're well on the way to being humbled before God. So Paul says, now it is not the case that the word of God has failed. The word of God has not failed. God's word has achieved its purpose through Israel. How? Well, as Paul goes on to explain, you can only grasp how God's word has not failed when you stop thinking in human terms and start seeing it all from God's perspective. And when you do, you're humbled to your knees. Now, there are three parts to the answer, three core reasons for humility. The first part of it is in the rest of chapter nine, and it's the hardest one. So strap in this week, because here we discover that God owes us nothing, and we can only rely on God's promise and call and mercy. Firstly, verses 6 to 13, you must understand Israel in terms of God's promise and his call. Promise and call, they're the key words in these verses. And this is all about God. It's about God's activity and God's character. Verse 6, Paul says, for it is not true that all those from Israel are Israel. Neither is it all children who are Abraham's seed. Rather, in Isaac, your seed will be called. That is, it's not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as seed. For the word of promise is this, about this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. 
not only that, but also in the case of Rebecca, who conceived children from one man, Isaac, our father. For when they had not yet been born, nor done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to election might stand, not from works, but from the one who calls, it was told her that the greater would serve the lesser. As it is written, Jacob I loved, and Esau I hated. See, when we think about Israel, we can be tempted to think in human terms. You know, what's Israel? How do we define Israel? Is it through human descent? Human activity, bearing children, doing things? In fact, sometimes people do read this chapter as if the main point Paul's talking about here is redefining the boundaries of Israel. But this isn't about boundaries. It's about God. The main point here is not ecclesiological, it's theological. It's about God's promise and call. We see that from Genesis. Paul says, if you want to really understand what Israel means, you need to understand this first and foremost. Israel is always reliant on God and his call. Israel isn't just a people group. It's the people of God's promise and call. And that's been true throughout Israel's history. And it's obviously seen in those places where God calls some and not others. God's call has nothing to do with any inherent quality in people, human descent, human works and activity. It has everything to do with God, God's promise, God's call. And that needs a radical humility for us, doesn't it? Because it undermines all kinds of, of human mindset and ways of thinking. It undermines both communalist and individualist mindsets. For communalists, the most important question is, who do I belong to? For individualists, the most important question is, what, I have, what have I achieved? Who am I? Maybe you're more prone to being a communalist or maybe an individualist. Or whichever you are, God's promise and his call are not based on either. Not on who you belong to, not on what you've achieved, but only on God, the one who promises and calls. Now, how's that relevant for God's dealings with Israel? Well, it shows that even when it comes to Israel, we must rely on God's mercy and not insist on his justice. I'll read from verse 14. What then shall we say? There's no injustice with God, is there? Absolutely not. For to Moses, he says, I'll have mercy on whomever I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whomever I have compassion. So that it is not a matter of the one who wills or the one who runs, but the one who has mercy, God. God's mercy is wonderful. It's a cause for great joy. But the thing about mercy, you see, is that it's mercy. So you can't insist on mercy. You can't, as a sinner, front up to God and demand that he must be merciful to you. And if you see another sinner who looks like they're getting less mercy than you are, you can't just front up to God and demand that God must have mercy on them too. You can't say, God, it's not fair. God does not owe you any mercy. He doesn't owe anybody else mercy either. That's not how mercy works. And if God wants to have mercy on some people, and not others. That is not unfair or unjust. That is God, the one who calls, the one who has mercy. God may well have other reasons not to show mercy at any given point for his own purposes. Now, Pharaoh is a classic illustration. For but the scripture says to Pharaoh, 
For this very reason, I raised you up, that I might display through you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Uh, you know the story of Exodus, don't you? Uh, Bron and I are actually up to it right now. We're reading it right now in our morning Bible readings. You know the story of hard-hearted Pharaoh who didn't let the people go and receive plagues and death. And yet, as you read, you see it's all God's plan. God had a purpose for Pharaoh. God wanted to use him and his hard-heartedness, hardening him to display his power and glorify his name in all the earth. And that's how God dealt with Israel too. God raised up the nation of Israel to demonstrate human sinfulness. He's hardened them in sin to bring the whole world to account, to show the whole world the need for Christ. That's Romans chapter 3. And friends, God's allowed to do that. Verse 18, so then on whomever he wants, he has mercy. Whomever he wants, he hardens. So you'll say to me, why then does he still find fault? For who opposes his will? That's the human objection. God, Israel's sin is your fault, not theirs. Because you intended their sin to demonstrate your glory. That's unfair, God. How, how do you answer that question? Did you expect Paul's answer of verse 20? Oh, human, who are you indeed who answers back to God? So what does form say to the one who formed it? Why are you making me like this? Doesn't the potter have authority over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honourable use and another for dishonourable? What if God, wanting to display his wrath and to make known his power, bore with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the wealth of his glory for vessels of mercy whom he prepared for glory? Yes, God has used the nation of Israel to demonstrate his wrath in a special way. Yes, he's hardened their stiff necks to show the whole world his justice. And so to display and glorify the saving power of the gospel for all those he wants to have mercy on. He's used Israel. But he's allowed to. Because he's God. Now, Paul's not saying that God is arbitrary or capricious. He's talking about God's justice and mercy. That is, if people oppose God and God judges them, that's justice. If God hardens people in their attitude of sin, God's allowed to do that. And he's also allowed to show mercy. And he's also allowed to raise up sinful human beings and be patient with them and use their sinfulness for his own purposes. And he's allowed to be merciful and bring people to glory. None of these is unjust or unfair. So I'll ask you at this point, are you thinking humanly when it comes to God? Are you insisting that God must be merciful to this or that person? Do you insist that God must be totally fair? If you do, well, be careful what you wish for, because we don't deserve God's mercy, do we? We can only rely on God's call, not on anything that defines us as human individuals or communities. And that was true for Israel as much as it is true for Gentiles. Verse 24, these vessels of mercy he also called, not only from Jews, but also from Gentiles. As it also says in Hosea, I will call those, not my people, my people. 
and the unloved loved. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. You can't insist that God must call Israel to salvation because they are his people. No, it's the other way around. Israel are only God's people because God has called them. And that's been true throughout Israel's history. Even at the darkest times, God has a purpose for Israel. And that purpose doesn't necessarily involve saving them each time. That's the point of verses 27 to 29. Isaiah cries out on behalf of Israel, even if the number of the sons of Israel is like the sand of the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For by completing the word and limiting it, the Lord will act upon the earth. This is just as Isaiah had spoken previously. If the Lord of hosts had not left us seed, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been made like Gomorrah. And now Israel as a whole is not relying on God's call. The vast majority of Israel is seeking to achieve righteousness by their own works, not receive it by faith from God. That's the point of verses 30 to 32. Uh, where Paul says, what shall we say? Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, a righteousness by faith. But Israel, while pursuing a law for the purpose of righteousness, did not even arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if by works. And yet even this was God's purpose all along. God deliberately put the stumbling stone there so that many in Israel would seek to do the very sinful thing they have clearly done their failure to have faith, their seeking after a righteousness through works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for stumbling and a rock for offence, and the one who believes in him will not be ashamed. So, brothers and sisters, here is our first reason for humility. God owes us nothing. We can only rely on God's promise and call and mercy. And this truth should bring us to our knees, shouldn't it? And it must deeply affect our attitudes, both in life and in ministry. God's purposes for your own ministry may not bring glory to you in this life. God might even be using your ministry to harden rather than soften. And if so, God is allowed to do that. Now, I'm sorry this first sermon hasn't been too cheery, but still it's necessary. Paul has a lot more to say about God's purposes for his people. And he has good things to say, good purposes. And he has much more to say about the gospel and further things to say about our reasons for humility before God. We'll look at those in future weeks as we come to chapters 10 and 11. But before we come to those things, we do need to hear these hard truths, don't we? And we need to sit with them for a while. We must understand Israel in terms of God's promise and God's call. We must rely on God's mercy, not insist on his justice. We can only rely on God's call. Uh, you can only rely on God's call. 
not on anything else that defines you as a human being, not on who you belong to, not on anything you do, not even anything you do in the ministry of the gospel or in your life. Well, to be continued. Let's pray. Our Father, we do pray that you would humble us, that you would help us to see you for who you are. Father, we do pray and we repent of times when we have been arrogant and come before you in ways where we've insisted that you must do what we want you to do. Father, give us grace, show us mercy, but Father, keep us humble. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.